Good morning. Our scripture text for this morning is from 2 Kings chapter 5, an interesting story, a story of a man who gets healed from a case of leprosy, and his name was Naaman. We're going to read the first 15 verses of 2 Kings chapter 5. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Who does this fellow, why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent them this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. Let's pray for a moment. God, I thank you for all the folks who are here this morning at our, our worship center and for those who are watching us online from different places, even different states. I pray that you will break through with the truth behind this message this morning, that you are a God who is always at work behind the scenes, that you are a God who works in strange ways. You work through the good in life, you work through the hardships in life, and if we look for you and if we turn our lives over to you, you are capable of doing amazing things in even the most complex and confusing times. And so I ask that your spirit will guide us not only in the midst of this service, but as we walk through this week ahead, that you will increasingly give us the ability to trust you, to listen for your voice, to search for you, and when we hear you, 
to follow in the truth that you unveil to us. I thank you for every person here. I thank you for the journeys that we've been on. I thank you for uh, the, the ways that other people have modeled faith for us little by little and the way that you have made your presence known to us. I ask that you would continue your work in each of us. Forgive us of our sins. Uh, allow us to continually be reshaped and, and remolded, not stuck just the way we are, but constantly on the pathway where you are making us more like Jesus. I pray that you will refine us and that you will fill our, our tongues with, with graceful words and that you will fill our minds with, with truth and that you will continue to put work before our hands that we can do to make a difference for other people. I ask that you will bless this church, not because we are more deserving than any other church, but because we desire to know you and to make you known to the world around us. So guide us in this time today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this has been a crazy week, hasn't it? In a lot of ways, when you look at the world at large, in the midst of the chaos and the carnage from Vladimir Putin's war to suppress and annex Ukraine over the past week, we find another story that is lurking just beneath the surface. Russian soldiers, many of whom are members of the Russian Orthodox Church, are waging war against members of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. In some cases, both parties speak Russian and have family members who live on either side of the borders. One of the news sources that I regularly read is the Religious News Service. It's staffed by a collection of veteran reporters who have spent most of their careers on the religious news beat. And so these reporters pool their efforts trying to help other American reporters from a variety of newspapers who are often very secular. They try to help them get the religious stories of the world down correctly. The RSS gang wrote this week about a split that took place in 2019 when the Ukrainian Orthodox Church sought its independence from all forms of the Russian Orthodox Church because of undue political interference that came from the Russian government. They were arguing that in a small way this split was seen as part of the ideological fracturing between Russia and Ukraine that began to actually take place in the way that control was being manipulated throughout the church. The split became so great that Vladimir Putin received the blessing of the Moscow Patriarchate to move ahead with his plan to wage war on Ukraine, where 87% of the population identifies as Christian and 60%, 67% of the population are part of one branch or another of the Orthodox Church. So imagine, for us, we think of this as two countries that are far away warring each, at each other. But closer to home, most of the people who are embattled on one side or the other of this conflict are all part of the same church movement. Heartbreaking. Simply put, this Russian-Ukrainian conflict is pitting two sets of Orthodox Christians against each other. Now here's the point of raising that introduction. When we look closely, we often find hidden stories within the stories that happen to capture the headlines. Today we're going to talk about another fascinating story uh, of some ordinary persons with extraordinary impact that is buried behind the lead story in the narrative of 2 Kings chapter 5 where a pagan general is healed by the prophet Elisha. For the next few minutes let me bring you back to our current series where we're talking about ordinary people in the Bible who had an extraordinary impact. 
Together we're exploring how ordinary people can have an extraordinary impact today by applying the same lessons that we learn about our God. When the Lord enters the equation, all kinds of things change. So welcome to North River Church. I love being here with our church family, and I'm glad that you are part of our church family today. Let me welcome all of those of you who are part of our congregation here today. Thank you for taking the time to come out and to, to join us. And I also love the fact that we know that there are many people who are joining us online today, and you're watching this service as it is streamed. And so I want to thank you for also making this a part of your experience today. And I want to challenge you to, to make the most of the next few moments. Figure out how you take away the, the uh, various distractions. Turn off your cell phone. Figure out what it is that can possibly interrupt. And give your attention to learning something from God this morning as we walk through this next um, part of this Ordinary to Extraordinary series. Crank up the volume. Set aside the distractions. Pray with us. Sing with us. Get out your Bible and get ready to dive in. And when you're ready and when you feel safer, we'd love to see you come and join us here and be a part of this experience here at North River's Pembroke campus. This morning we're focusing on part four of our Ordinary People Extraordinary Impact series, and the topic is First in the Nation. We're going to see that Naaman was the first in his nation among the people of Aram who come to faith in the living God. And I have a question that's been lurking behind this as I've been uh, living with this particular chapter of the Bible for the last week. Does God ever reveal how he is at work behind the scenes? And what do we discover when God does reveal how he's working behind the scenes? So here we go. First in the nation, how God works behind the scenes. I'd like to walk through five ways that we discover that God is at work behind this unusual story. Here's the first way. By sparking or creating spiritual hunger through an unnamed slave girl. Verse 2 of chapter 5 reads this way. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. First and second Kings are two historical books in the Old Testament, and they tell Israel's history through the legacy of its kings. Some of these kings were really good, some of these kings were really evil. These books were likely started by Samuel and then added to by official chroniclers through the centuries of Israel's development. They could not possibly have been the work of one person because there's too much time that is covered. And then they were put into their final form by Ezra during the exile period. They do not provide an exhaustive history of every detail through all the years of Israel's history. Instead, they focus on key stories that give us some of the highs and the lows of each period. In some of these periods, the kings were poor leaders or devoid of faith, so the narratives of First and Second Kings actually follow more closely the lives of the prophets who were provided for the hope of the nation. This is one of those moments. Elisha is the second great prophet who's written about in the books of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. The first was Elijah, and Elisha was his understudy and then took over for him eventually. Elisha ministered in the days of what is known as the divided kingdom when Israel was separated into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel with its capital being Samaria, and the southern kingdom was smaller. It was called Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. So after the days of David and Solomon, the kingdom became split in two. Israel's northern border was shrinking, 
as the kingdom of Aram, which was located north of Israel, began to attack and to take more and more of the territory moving down into Israel. So the thought of King Joram of Israel helping King Ben-Hadad of Aram was a very, very unusual thing. They had been at war with each other. They didn't like each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. But during this time, there was a top general from the country of Aram named Naaman who came down with a case of leprosy. Naaman was successful, he was powerful, he was wealthy, and he was favored by Aram's king. He was a personal friend of the king. But getting a diagnosis of leprosy, whether you were wealthy or poor, was like getting a death sentence. It was a disease that attacked the nervous system, and there was no known medical cure at that time. Without a cure, it would soon destroy his life, it would ruin his family's fortunes, and so not only was Naaman at risk, but his entire family would have been in mourning. Yet the story turns on a slave girl's faith in the way that God had worked through Elisha in the days before she was taken captive. We're told that bands of raiders from Aaron had come into Israel and they had taken this girl and they had made her a slave and she ended up in the home of Naaman and his wife. We never know her name. We don't know how old she was. But she has a faith that cannot be stifled or hidden. She believed that God was at work through this prophet Elisha and she had faith that if Naaman could just make his way to meet with Elisha, that Elisha could heal Naaman. Now think of it, her lot in life was rather discouraging, but she steps forward in faith anyway, saying, if only my master would see the prophet. Her confident witness of what she knew to be true and of the power that she had seen operating in Israel through Elisha the prophet gets passed from Naaman's wife to Naaman, and eventually Naaman brings this to the attention of the king of Aram. She hasn't turned Naaman at this point into a follower of Israel's God, but she's created a hunger. He wants to know more. He has a hunger to see if the God of Israel truly has the power and compassion to heal a pagan military officer. Friends, sometimes that's all that God calls us to do, to give a reason for the hope that we have, the New Testament says, to point someone in the right direction and to help create that hunger to discover the living God. You and I are not capable of convincing somebody intellectually all in one conversation to become a follower of God. But when we tell our stories, when we tell what we know, when we live out the faith that we have, God often uses that to create a hunger in somebody else to learn more than they know right now or to discover more than they know right now or to find out for themselves if this God is real and if this God can make a difference in our lives. This unnamed girl's faithful witness and impact is the hidden story behind the main story in chapter 5 of 2 Kings. And Naaman saw enough from her words and from her hope that it quickened his desire to explore. So the first way that we see that God is at work is by creating this spiritual hunger through an unnamed slave girl. Here's the second way we see God at work. Through a pagan king and a religious quest. We pick up the story at verse 4. Naaman then takes it to the next step. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replies. And then he adds to it. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. He intended to give these as gifts if he could indeed be healed. 
The letter that he took to the king of Israel read this way. With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Okay, so let's put some of the pieces of this puzzle together. Naaman is a pagan army commander from Aram, the nation north of Israel, who has leprosy. His wife has a captured slave girl from Israel who has faith in God's prophet Elisha. Aram's king, who is an idol worshiper, gets behind this plan and he sends Naaman to Israel. He likes Naaman so much he says, I'll send you to my enemy and maybe they can help you. And he even goes so far as to write a letter on his behalf. This letter expresses the hope that Israel's king will figure out the solution and it'll send Naaman to the prophet and then back to Aram healed. This means that a pagan king sends Naaman on a religious quest to Israel. Isn't this strange? It's wonderful though. They've heard, all they've heard is from the testimony of an unnamed slave girl. We don't even know how old, perhaps she's still a teenager. But that one spark of faith and hope now has gotten from one king who reads a letter to another king. And this pagan king is so enthused with this that not only is Naaman's curiosity peaked, where he has to find more, now this king wants to know if there truly is a God who is operative in Israel who has the power to heal and to change lives. It's an amazing story. But then comes the problem. The problem is that Israel's king, whose name is Joram, is not on close terms with Israel's God. Joram was the son of Ahab. Think of Ahab and Jezebel. They were the ones who turned Israel toward the worship of Baal, one of the idols of the nations around them. They'd begun an evil dynasty that opposed worshiping the one true God. They felt what they were going to do was modernize Israel and bring it up to speed with all the other idol-worshiping nations around them. And so they had this attack, more or less, on the religious system of Israel. They'd opposed Israel's two most prominent prophets, Elijah and then Elisha. So now their son, King Joram, is on the throne, and Joram reads this letter from his enemy, the king of Aram, and he sees Naaman standing there. Not only is Naaman standing there, he's come with horses and chariots and servants and a whole lot of wealth. And he shows up for the, next to the king, not even sure how this all happens or where he's going to find this prophet. But he's there expecting great things to happen. And Joram is terrified. He absolutely freaks out. He says, am I God? Can I kill and bring that back to life? See, this other king is trying to pick a quarrel with me, pick a fight with me. And Joram tears his robes, which means he's bewildered. He thinks this is all a setup, and he goes into mourning. What was going on? Here's what God was up to. The Lord God wanted to stir his people to faith. And yet there were all kinds of obstacles in Israel most prominently a king who didn't believe in the God of Israel, the God of their history, the God of the past, the God of the Passover. And so he used Naaman's desperate need for a cure for leprosy. And he used a young girl in slavery who had faith and a pagan king's friendship with Naaman, all to get the attention of Israel's faithless king Joram in order to reveal that God was still on the throne. Here's the main idea that I'm trying to get across this morning that just rings out through these five observations. Even in the midst of spiritual and political chaos, God is always at work behind the scenes. 
That's what we see happen and play out again and again and again through all the eras of Old Testament history. The good years, the bad years, the, the great reigns, the, the awful reigns of some of the kings. Even in the midst of spiritual and political chaos, God is always at work behind the scenes. The problem is we often don't understand how God works. So we've been looking at how God works behind the scenes, first by creating a spiritual hunger through this unnamed slave girl's faithful testimony of what she knows to be true, second through a pagan king and a religious quest. Here's the third way, through a faithless king's despair. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. King Joram could not see how God was working, and when he reads this letter, he is absolutely distressed. He's convinced that the king of Aram was setting him up to fail. He sees nothing but some kind of political trap that was sent by this opposing king, and he wonders, how would he, how would Joram help Naaman? And so he tore his robes, a sign of mourning. But Elisha heard about the king's rant and he sent word to the king. Did you get that? We don't have the king's speech here. We have the king's rant. And Elisha sends word. He says, send them to me. He will know that there is a prophet in Israel. During these years of great spiritual decline in Israel, God had raised up these two prophets. First, Elijah, to whom a whole lot of miraculous events happened. And then Elijah got discouraged at one point after one of the greatest of the victories that he had. And he asked God to send him help. And so Elisha was raised up. And Elisha followed Elijah, worked with him for a while, and then he succeeded him and carried on this ministry of speaking God's words to the people in an era when the king was opposing God himself. This response was Elisha's way of letting Joram know that God was still at work, that God was still speaking. This was a meeting, girl, a meeting that the servant girl had hoped for from the beginning. She had no idea about letters from one king to another king. She just wanted her master, Naaman, to meet up with Elisha. And we begin to see that God was up to something, though, as Israel's king, Jordan, Joram, freaked out. God was sending a message to Joram and to all of Israel through Naaman's dilemma. It's not that he didn't care about Naaman's dilemma. It's not that he caused Naaman's leprosy for this purpose. But God was using it for his own purposes. The Lord's ability to show mercy is not dependent upon the power of kings or even the faithfulness of kings. As I was thinking this through, there was a verse from the Old Testament that came to mind from Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, the Lord is speaking and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In other words, he's saying sometimes I work in ways that you can't understand until you can see the larger picture from a, from a higher angle, from the 30,000-foot view, so to speak, looking down at a larger period of history. These were dark, dark times for the people of Israel. They suffered from a series of evil kings, but even in the midst of this chaos, God was still sending reminders of his power and his grace. King Joram of Israel wanted no part of this story, yet nonetheless God was sending him a reminder through Naaman that God was still at work and that God was still powerful and that he was to be reckoned with. And then we see a fourth way that God was revealing how he was working behind the scenes. 
through a commander's reluctant submission. I find the story of, of Naaman rather interesting. Uh, Naaman doesn't appear to be a person who uh, from his own is on a heat-seeking mission to discover God. He has a need. He has this disease that no one can cure. Can, can cure. And he's heard from this servant girl that maybe there is a God in Israel who actually can do that. And he is willing to go to great lengths to discover. So we pick up the story, two more verses in verse 10 and 11. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But look at verse 11. It starts off by saying, But Naaman went away angry. So we started off by seeing how God used Naaman's wife's servant girl. She'd been taken captive by Israel by a band of raiders, sold as a slave. We don't know her name. We don't know how old she was. We only know that she believed that the prophet in Samaria, Elisha, could heal Naaman. And the testimony about what she knew stirred up this spiritual curiosity, this spiritual hunger in Naaman. When Naaman appeared before Elisha, there was an absolute culture clash. Elisha lives simply, and Naaman shows up with horses and chariots and gold and silver and gifts. There's a huge power differential at work. Can you see it? Can you feel it? And Naaman was about to be humbled, but he didn't know it. Elisha tes <coughs> tested him by sending a servant to greet him and to offer instructions. Elisha didn't come out to meet him himself. And Naaman was told to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times, and he would be healed. It's almost kind of matter of fact. Here, here, here's the message from my, my master, Elisha. If you'll just go down to the Jordan and you dunk yourself seven times, you're going to come up, your skin's going to be perfectly healed and cleaned, and you'll be cleansed and sent home on, and on your way. Didn't we see two weeks ago with Gideon that God often tests our faith? He does this, we've found then, to strengthen our faith and to show us sometimes that what we are trusting in is the wrong thing. And Naaman was about to have one of those lessons in his life. This was Naaman's test, and he was not at all happy when it gets presented to him. Why? He had preconceived notions about how a great man should be treated. He's come with all this pop, pop, pomp and circumstance, with his horses, his chariots, all the wealth on display. He has power. He has a letter from the king. He's now been sent and commissioned by two kings to come to Elisha. And Elisha doesn't even meet him in person. He has a servant tell him to wash himself seven times. And when he heard this, he just lost his mind. First we see the king of Israel lose his mind. Now we see Naaman lose his mind. And he starts saying things like, don't we have better rivers than this in our own country in Aram? Why couldn't I go wash there? If that's all I have to do is dunk myself seven times, why not? The point for Elisha was different. Naaman needed to discover who the Lord is and just how powerful and sovereign the Lord God really is. Naaman, on hearing these words, was about to turn on his heels and go home he was so angry. You get the picture that he's livid, but his servants grab a hold of him. His servants have come with him all this way, and they begin to talk him out of leaving. They, they explain to him, if the prophet had asked you to do something really, something really difficult, something, something really bizarre, wouldn't you have done it? Wouldn't you have done some great act that you thought would lead to a miracle? 
And so they say, how much more then if he asks you to do something simple like go down to the river and dip yourself in the river seven times? Naaman, we've come all this way. What do you have to lose? This was a faith test about whether Naaman would submit to God's ways and do it God's way or not. There's nothing magic about the Jordan River. Uh, from people who've told me who've been there, I haven't. It's actually kind of a dirty river. This was about whether Naaman would take instructions from the man who spoke for God. And then we find one more way that God was at work behind the scenes. The fourth was through a, a commander's reluctant, um, reluctant obedience and, and declaration, but finally through a holy ground experience that Naaman had. When Naaman dipped himself in the Jordan that last time, he discovered that his skin was restored. Now here's a man with a disease that was a death sentence, finding that his skin has instantly been transformed, like that of a young boy, no pockmarks, no sores, no scars, no hint of what he'd been dealing with. And Naaman makes this statement, now I know, now I know that there is no God in all the world, not just that, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. This is his declaration. He's all in. This is a non-Jewish person from a neighboring nation that had been at war with Israel that wanted to stamp out Israel's existence. And yet he had seen the power of God to change lives in the most unlikely circumstances. Early church leader Irenaeus referred to this as Naaman's baptism. He likened it to the way that when Jesus came on years later, he asked people to be baptized as believers, and they would go down to the river, and they would confess their sins, and then they would be baptized. Many people initially balk at the idea of such a public demonstration of faith or being dunked in water, but this was Naaman's moment of total surrender to God's ways. And then Naaman, after he is healed, asks for two things. He makes this declaration that there's no God anywhere except for Israel, but he asks for two things. The first is understanding from God, and the second is dirt. Let me un unpack that for you. This was a big deal for Naaman. His king and his country worshipped an idol known as Rimmon. And Naaman often went to the temple with his friend the king who had sent him to Elisha. And the king would lean on Naaman when he would bow down to worship his god, Rimmon, which forced Naaman to bow too. So Naaman asked the first request to the prophet Elisha. He said, I want to know if the Lord will nonetheless show me mercy and understanding because part of my job is to go to the temple of Rimmon with my master, the king, and he leans on me. And so when he bows down, I have to bow down too. And I'm asking for understanding that God would know that I'm not really bowing to Rimmon. Never again will I sacrifice or will I worship an idol, but I'm serving my master, the king. And so he knows that he's going to go back into the presence of the, of the king, but he's going to be a different person. But then his second request is really fascinating. Only time that I find something like this in the entire Old Testament. The second request was for, for some of the good Jordan River dirt from the banks of the river. He wanted as much earth as two mules could carry. What's behind that? The implication that he was leading to was that 
Naaman, who had at first completely rejected the idea that he would go into the Jordan River and be dipped seven times, now after this healing experience, knowing that the God of Israel is the true God, sees the banks of the Jordan River as holy ground. And he wants to take back as much dirt as he can carry so that he can create a place at his own home where he can kneel down on that same dirt and try to reimagine the experience that he had the day that he came up out of the Jordan River. You see what's going on here? His life has been forever more changed. He's saying, I want to have a spot that I can create at home where I will worship for the rest of my life the God of Israel because this is the true God. And Naaman would be the first in the nation to openly declare that the God of Israel is the one true God and to openly serve the God of Israel even though he was in direct service of the king of Aram. And so he wanted to take back some of the dirt to create a space of holy ground on which to bow down to the God who had saved his life. Question. Have you ever had a holy ground experience thus far in your life? Now, the Bible never teaches us to emulate or copy Naaman's act here, and I don't know of anything exactly like this in the rest of Scripture. But the Bible does have a series of holy ground moments. Think of Moses when he takes off his sandals and kneels before that burning bush that is not consumed even though it's on fire, and the voice of God speaks to him and says, Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt. Take off your shoes because this is holy ground. Think of Jacob when he was running away from his homeland and he has this vision in the middle of the night. He sees angels ascending and descending on a stairway to heaven. And he makes an altar there. And Jacob's life has changed from that moment on. He sees himself as a new person in the service of God that God has revealed himself to him. Or when Joshua and the the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land, and the river stops as they walk through so that they can go through on dry ground. He instructs them to find seven large stones, and they, they build a monument right there on the riverbed to the memory of God. And there, there are more if you look for them, but there are these holy ground moments where people are told to make markers that remind them of what God has done. Do you know why we wear crosses? It's not because we love the act of crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal, brutal brutal way of punishing people. We wear crosses and we honor the cross because on the cross Jesus died and paid for our sins. And when he was raised to life, it showed that the power of that cross, the power of what was done, that the cross could not take his life ultimately. The cross became a symbol of victory. It's why people go back to Israel today They want to stand at the foothills of Golgotha and be in the presence of where Jesus made that sacrifice. They want to see the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and some of these marvelous events. I want to go to Israel. I haven't been there yet. I was a part of that crew that was going to go two years ago and we got wiped out ultimately by COVID. A whole bunch of North River people that were going to go together. One of the things that I now want to see when I finally get there is I want to see the Jordan River and I want to think about Naaman 
walking down into the river seven times to, to dip himself. And imagine the joy of Naaman when he walks up completely restored, knowing that there is no other God but the God of Israel, and then beginning to scoop up the dirt and to put it in the packs that went on those mules to bring back to his country of Aram because that had become holy ground. I have news for you. Whenever God steps into your life and he brings dramatic change or a breakthrough or a revelation or he reveals himself to you in a new way, he creates moments of holy ground in your life where he wants you to go back and remember. I have one of those that, that stands out for me. 22 years ago, Peter Dupre and I went to a conference out at Saddleback Church. And uh, at the time, we were going through a really rough patch at our church here at North River. And I was completely discouraged and ready to quit. And what I honestly hoped is that I'd, I'd go out to this church conference and that I'd find that there were people interviewing pastors and I'd come back with another job and I'd announce that I was going to go somewhere else. I was that discouraged and brokenhearted. And Rick Warren spoke at the end of that conference, and he said, you know, we've been talking for several days now about these uh, purpose-driven principles that are laced throughout the New Testament. He said, but here's the reality is you can't teach any of these principles unless you're willing to give yourself to your congregation. And he had an altar call for pastors. And I went forward like a blubbering idiot, crying my eyes out, because the truth is I wanted to quit. And what I felt was God was speaking to me, saying, you need to stay right where you are. This is where I've called you. This is where you're going to continue to minister. And I remember coming back the next week and talking to our church in both services and said, I have to tell you, something dramatic happened at this conference that I didn't expect, and I'm the one that went forward for an altar call. And when I left two weeks ago, I was ready to quit. But I want you to know I'm not going anywhere. I think of that 22 years ago that God spoke to me that day. It doesn't happen very often in my life, but he did on that day. And just all the good things that have happened since that time. I've been back to that church a handful of times, and each time that I do, I walk to the front, and I kneel at the same spot where I knelt among several other hundred pastors that day, and I cry because God revealed himself to me in a holy ground moment. What's your holy ground moment? When's the last time you went back to remember that moment when God broke through to you in a new way? Thank him for it. Bless him for it. Even in the midst of spiritual and political chaos, God is always at work behind the scenes. I hope that you will take heart Despite all the confusion that we're seeing around us, I don't know what God is up to exactly in the moment. But when we can see the larger picture, I am confident of this. We are going to see that there are sub-stories behind the main stories where God was at work in powerful ways. And I want to be a part of that. And I hope that you want to be a part of that too. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for allowing us to go through discouraging times and confusing times so that when we see your hand at work, we appreciate all the more the beauty of your design. Thank you for calling us to surrender. When our hearts aren't ready to surrender, when the plan doesn't make sense to us, when it hurts to do so, but knowing that you've created this spiritual hunger and curiosity with us to discover more, 
And I pray that you will cause breakthrough moments in all of our lives where we can see what you are doing and how you are using us even in unfair, impossible situations. And like Naaman, I pray that you will give us the ability to declare in an unswerving, unforgettable, unchangeable way, now I know that there is no God in all the world except the God of Israel, the God who is the Father of Jesus, the God who loves us. Lord, it's to him that we commit our ways and ask that you will continue to work in our lives and to reveal your plans. In Jesus' name, amen.